Coming up this hour, probably the strangest show we've ever done. You'll find out why soon. This is The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. I'll explain why he's not here in just a moment. But a couple of quick things. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And wherever it is you get your podcast. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, reviewing seems silly, but all of that does really help us out a whole lot. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that Brian and I are both full-time pastors. That's our primary job. And every once in a while, our schedules just don't align. And today is one of those days. So what we decided to do, for better or for worse, I'm going to take this entire first hour, and then Brian's going to take the entire second hour. And I had an idea which I'm not convinced is actually a good idea. It came to me late last night that rather than talking about the news and everyone's talking about Texas and Florida and Liberty University and social media and all that, uh, what I what I thought I would do is to dive into my old blog. Now, I used to blog fairly regularly, haven't in many, many years. Some of these blogs are like 15 or 20 years old. So what I'm going to do for the remainder of this hour is I just picked four at random I have not proofed them, which is probably foolish, and I'm just going to share them. They're sort of a sort of like a peek into Ian's digital journal from 15 or 20 years ago, and these are sort of stories. So each segment is about nine or 10 minutes or so, and each segment will be one entry from one of my journals, and I apologize in advance if this goes terribly. So here's one I wrote about 17 years ago. It's called Fences. Says, I grew up in a corner house. Now, this meant a lot of things for me as a child, things a normal adult human might not think of. For example, this meant that our cardio-minded neighbors spotted us during our sunrise kickboxing, kickboxing sessions atop our trampoline, as we were accustomed to doing after spending the night upon its springing goodness, usually with sleeping bags over our heads to make it interesting. True story. It also meant that local pedestrians were able to gaze with great ease upon the wasteland of a backyard that my brother and I created after we spread the leveling sand from our broken above-ground pool throughout the entire yard to make our very own kind of redneck mini golf course. But most importantly, it meant that we had additional sidewalk for all of the antics our little homeschooled minds could conjure, which usually involved ramps built with logs and rotting plywood or strapping wheels to items that should never roll. One such encounter of said conjuring occurred when I was the wise and discerning age of about nine years of age, the pinnacle of cognitive development in a boy's life. Some friends were overusing our magnificent trampoline, and as they were accustomed to doing, I decided that this was my moment to really impress them. So I grabbed my off-brand Transformers BMX wannabe bike and headed to the front of the house. As I sped down the side of our house, approaching the backyard, I took my hands off the handlebars. Just as my bouncing buddies came into view, I shouted proudly, look, guys, no hands. Somehow, the fact that the gate to our fence was wide open had escaped my otherwise thorough calculations. Blinded to my impending doom by the allure of impressing my trampoline-loving friends, I crashed into our old metal gate harder than Pauly Shore's career. My left arms went through the chain link, curling me from my gloriously heroic bicycle, brutally dragging me along the concrete in a perfect half circle of doom. As I tried to assess the situation, it became painfully clear that I had torn up my knee pretty badly. 
I'd like to think my reaction to this realization was stoic and valiant, but I'm sure I cried like a tweenie at a Bieber show. Judge me if you have to. Spellbound at my newly acquired flesh wound, I stared intently at many colors of blood as it poured from my leg until my mother, hearing the screams from our now entertained yet terrified guests, ran to my aid. Being the loving, caring, and intuitive mother she was and is, my mother immediately brought me inside to clear the debris from my leg. Once we concluded that the torture session, once we concluded that torture session, she brought a tube of some sort of of some sorts from the basement. This will help heal the scab from becoming too hard, she said. It will make life a lot easier when we need to change the gauze. I'm convinced now that what my mother brought to me that day was not, in fact, a tube filled with the dreams and rainbows I was promised, but instead was a mislabeled canister of rubber cement mixed with concrete. I say this not to assert that my mother had always secretly hoped that I would one day be immobile and stop breaking things around the house, but because just a mere 24 hours after this, quote, magical gloop was applied, my wound was as indurated as Dick Van Dyke's jawline. It was getting worse. By the time a week had passed and it was time to change the bandage, my family was using the rock-like wound to open beer cans and bust down castle doors. It was bad. And there I sat, seven days from that infamous event, sitting terrified in the tub with the hopes that a good soaking would make the unwrapping process a little less painful. Once again, my calculations were just a hair off. After a quick word of inspiration from my father, my mother then slowly peeled away layer one of 13 away from my grotesque mummy of a kneecap. I gripped the side of the tub like it was a bobsled and shrieked as if someone had stabbed me in the spleen or forced me to watch I Hate My Teenage Daughter. Picking up on the subtlety of my discomfort, my mother grabbed the pair of scissors and cut all remaining 12 layers of the gate of the gauze on either side of my table top scab. This way we can take each layer off a little more easily, she said lovingly. It will be a lot less trouble. I breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that my wise and loving mother was there, helping me along. I sat back, feeling much calmer now, working up the courage to give my mom the go-ahead with layer number 12. However, as I looked off in the distance, trying to muster all the boldness my little nine-year-old mind could manage, my mother summoned the strength and speed of 10 ninjas and quickly ripped off all 12 remaining tiers of wound-protecting cloth in one fell swoop. I won't even bother to explain to you my reaction. I'm sure your imagination has already pieced that together. I would simply start with the image of a banshee receiving a root canal and go from there. Not my proudest moment as an, as an aspiring stuntman, that's for sure. I was thinking about this story the other day and drew all of these connections to the years that followed this event. Countless moments where life was painful, embarrassing, or difficult, and I wanted to take my sweet time unwrapping the bandage of sorts, cringing and squirming at each layer, and then someone or something comes along and rips off all 12 crippling layers and says, it's time to let this breathe. I'm so rarely ready, ready for those moments. I think few of us ever are. Our lists grow longer and longer. The things we'd like to have, quote, under our belt before we make this decision or take that risk. We cling to the bandage of familiarity, even if that familiarity is steeped in pain and bitterness. We see the wounds. The memory is still very fresh in our minds, but we're just not quite ready to take the necessary step toward healing. Often, I think we desperately need these people in our life that are willing to rip the gauze from our skin when we ourselves perpetually assert that we're just not ready. The truth is, often we truly aren't ready, but the greater reality is that we'll never actually be completely prepared. 
when I get this degree or make this much money or meet this person or feel this feeling are all benchmarks that simply may never come. When we tether ourselves to an ideal that we've created, we often end up crippling ourselves, creating a paradigm that rests on the assuredness of our abilities instead of the provisions of a great and loving God. We place the crown upon our own heads and bemoan the kingdom. If we are always waiting to feel ready, we may one day awake old men and women crushed with the realization that ready just simply never came. We'll realize that the wrongs that we have done and the wrongs done to us have identified us more than Christ. We will see bandages that needed to be removed long ago, keeping the wounds from the life-giving air around us. I, for one, need to be reminded that these wounds aren't permanent, that the breath of the Spirit brings deep healing, and that I am to boast in my weakness as it brings greater glory to the goodness of God. So may we be a people that do not simply amble recklessly throughout our lives, trying desperately to impress those in the backyards of our experience, but embrace an audacity that clings to the promises of God, even when we feel anything but ready. So here's to living sacrificially, loving unconditionally, and serving radically with our entire lives. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. He'll be joining us in the second hour. As I mentioned a little earlier, this is a bit of an experiment, perhaps one that all of us will regret come tonight. But my bright idea late last night was, what if I just pick at random some things that I've blogged over the years? Now, keep in mind, I haven't blogged in a very long time. So these are stories and blogs that I've written 15, 17, some almost 20 years ago that I've picked at random. I have not proofread, which is probably a mistake. And here is segment two. It's called Water. I adore my grandmother. I actually don't ever call her that. My name for her since I was two years old has been Fram Fram. In fact, that was the exact name I called my grandfather by too. When I addressed letters to both of them, I began them like this. Dearest Fram Fram and Fram Fram. A short, fiery Irish woman at a towering five-foot flat, she is the source of and inspiration for countless of my family's favorite stories. However, the story that I was pondering this week is not my favorite story, nor is it even the funniest. It's just simply one that has me thinking today. It was the summer of 1995, and my grandparents, as they always did, had driven to Michigan from Arizona to spend time with family and friends during the warmer months of the Midwest. This was always such a cherished time because of the great distance that usually separated us. Fram Fram and Fram Fram would spend the summers staying from house to house for a couple of weeks at a time, ensuring that, th- that they got some good quality time with each of the people they cared so much about. We would spend time playing cards, running through the sprinkler, telling stories, and fetching the frosted mug that Grandma kept in the freezer of all of her closest friends' house. An archetypal Irish woman, to be sure. She sure loves her beer. During one such visit to our home, a few of us were packed into our tiny kitchen making an honored childhood lunch. Hot dogs, mac and cheese, and lemonade. After we had successfully mixed the gourmet neon cheese powder with the noodles, stirred the exquisite lemony grit into a pitcher of tap water, and boiled the hot dogs to saturated perfection, we prepared to dig in. Before heading to the dining room, I grabbed the pot with the leftover hot dog water and shuffled carefully to the sink. Just as I was about to pour the clouded elixir down the drain, my grandmother burst into the room. What are you doing? She yelled. A bit confused by the question, I timidly responded. "Uh, I was dumping the hot dog water down the drain. Not on my watch, she responded, and she took the pan full of hot dog nectar from my hands and ran out the front door. A bit confused about what had just transpired, I ran outside after her only to find Fram Fram carefully watering the flowers in her front yard 
with this pan of foggy hot dog water. Once she had successfully done that, she then poured the remaining water into a Ziploc bag and placed it in our refrigerator. She then said sternly but lovingly, don't you ever waste water. I remember having a good laugh about this whole scenario years later as we recounted the presumably frenetic actions of my grandma. My family has a lot of these types of stories and none of us are exempt. But as I was thinking about this seemingly minuscule event this week, it got my mental fluid stirring and well, instead of pouring it down the drain, I thought I'd try watering some flowers instead. As a child, I didn't realize or really understand what it meant to live in a place like Arizona, but my grandparents did. The overwhelming heat and desolate stretches of land were not foreign to them. With this experience came a profound cognizance of and appreciation for water. In the suburbs of Detroit, water wasn't ever anything I had to think of beyond having enough for my makeshift slip and slide, but for them, Water was precious. It was valued and treasured, and it showed. I began to think of the things, and more importantly, the people in my life that I consider precious, valued, and treasured. I thought of the scarcity of time I spend intentionally telling these people how cherished they really are. I pondered the infrequency of my relational deposits compared to my withdrawals. I felt challenged to begin thinking past the, hey, how are you, and the what's going on, to examine my own heart and how my actions affirm or negate it. I think that because of our great excess, whether monetary wealth, relational abundance, or what we perceive to be an endless amount of time, we frequently confuse what is precious and what is not. Often in our lives, the most urgent things take the place of the most important things, some of us completely unaware that it's happening at all. I remember getting a really difficult letter from a friend of mine years ago. It was a long, honest, and loving letter with a lot of really difficult truths throughout. One line in particular read this. It said, Ian, you're not Superman. You can't save everyone. You can't love everyone. And while you're busy trying to love the whole world, those who are closest to you have no idea that they are. I've read those words dozens of times over the years. I've even pulled out this letter from time to time to again face the brutal truths found on these pages. I'm so grateful for friends who speak the weighty words of admonition to me and humbled at how far I still have to go. I long for the wisdom to see things as God sees them, to live in a sort of Ecclesiastes 3 type of awareness of the world, to look into the eyes of the hurting and for them to know that they are loved, to speak words of life and grace and to do so frequently, to say, I love you and know that those hearing it know that I mean it. Life is just simply too fleeting not to. My dear Fran Fran was willing to snatch a pot from an 11-year-old hand to show how precious water truly was to her. Perhaps we can ask the same. Maybe we can ask, what am I willing to do for the cherished relationships in my own life? What do I need to say no to in order to say yes to the right things? And like my grandma, may we move beyond the wisdom of the bumper sticker and the Facebook status and begin to invest our lives in what truly matters most. You're listening to The Common Good. On AIM 1160. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. If you're just tuning in, he and I are actually recording two separate hours because of scheduling conflicts. And uh, I had this idea late last night. I have no idea if it's even a moderately good idea, but we're going with it anyway. I used to blog a good deal, so I picked four blogs 
totally at random. Some of them are 15, 16. This one I'm about to read is actually 18 years old. I have not proofread them. So please forgive me in advance for what I'm about to say. This is sort of like interweb insanity, but Ian's digital diary version. So uh, here we go. This one is from 2002 and it's called Library. It says, there's a library in my hometown that I adore. It doesn't really look like a library at all. It's smushed or smooshed, depending on your region, in between a creepy costume shop and a buddy's pizza. This costume shop is creepy enough for me to go to a different library on occasion simply to avoid the radiant creepiness of the small shop. But that's that's not important, at least not now. The library is one of those buildings that proclaims its existence on the front, but only allows entrance in the back. I don't know whose idea that was, but I, I find it darn funny. You walk through the unmarked and heavily tinted double doors into a bare and wonderfully earth tone lobby with two plastic chairs from that era in the 70s where apparently the awkward plastic chair industry was booming. I so love those chairs and their awkwardness. The only other thing in this small flash from the past lobby is a giant silver elevator. The silver is almost glaring in its opposition to the uniformity of the dull browns and greens that adorn this little hippie oasis. Even a newcomer would assume that the elevator is the next course of action in this bizarre venture because the chairs don't seem to hold much promise and there's, well, there's nothing else in the room. So you climb or walk into this elevator and observe the one lonely button all by itself, which I still find hilarious. It makes me think of a special agent elevator for some reason. So with the deductive reasoning skills at your, as your guide, you press the one button available and begin ascending slowly upward. Now, this poor elevator is like the vertical version of the little engine that could. If you hadn't seen the outside of the building before you came in and knew that it was only two stories high, you'd think that you were climbing the highest skyscraper in the Midwest. But alas, the doors open and the elevator, who I would like to call Earl for some reason, lets out a little huff from his exhausting 15-foot journey in hopes that no one else will strain his poor gears for at least another two hours so he can fully rest. Poor elevator Earl. Upon first glance, this looks like a typical low-budget library. The ambitious interior designer that beautifully orchestrated the lobby below apparently got his big break when asked to also plot out the color scheme for the library as well. Browns, greens, oranges, and what once were yellows dance on your eyes as a literature kaleidoscope of educational delight. The smell of old pages fills your nostrils. It smells a lot like a thrift store, actually. And no matter who's working, the attendant at the front desk is always wearing overalls, a mother goose shirt, and adorable little librarian glasses. Always. I've never so consistently been greeted to the point of thorough enchantment at any other place. It's like seeing that one aunt who lives relatively far away but will always welcome you with a delightful smile and a hug. Only these librarians don't typically hug, but you get the impression that they would if they weren't behind this colossal desk, so you let it slide. There's a lot of library-esque type activity going on, whatever that is. You, you can see little drooling toddlers uh, who are much more concerned with the picture than the notion of reading, which greatly resembles a college in a way, right? There's always some individual in the corner who was a functioning citizen during the Wright Brothers flights reading some obscure textbook or romance novel that piqued their interest for some reason. You, you almost feel as though whatever category of description you yourself fit into is exactly the demographic that is missing to bring balance to this scholastic exhibit your seating destination is almost obvious mainly due to the limited number of chairs but let's not count out the possibility of that whole kind of balance thing i was mentioning earlier you pull out your trapper keeper 
you know that you had one and loved one and find either the book you're looking for or the more intriguing one that you saw on your way to return to your seat. And I'm not sure at what point this turned into a ridiculous narrative, but just go with me. You might get a few pages in before you notice, but eventually it hits you. It hits you that you can actually hear the turning of pages other than your own. It hits you that the struggled breathing of the retired Ford worker is strangely audible, yet oddly soothing at the same time. It hits you that for some reason, the atmosphere in this library is brilliantly different and peaceful. You might look around for a second or two and even apply your detective skills to determine the cause of this wonderful stillness. And over the muffled snickers of preschoolers laughing at the guy that fell asleep, you realize the element that is missing from this scene, thus creating such a pleasant atmosphere. Computers. There isn't a single whirling computer in the entire library. As you could probably imagine, that means there's also not a single printer or copier for that matter. There's no frantic pounding on keyboards or buzzing gears of the inkjet wonder. No, the Dewey Decimal System is lowered here. The rich history of library classification is found in beautiful actuality right before your eyes. You would not believe the utter sense of serenity that is experienced in a place like that. The deficiency of mouse clicks and paper jams is an experience that my limited writing skills will not allow me to convey with the accuracy deserved of such an encounter. It's beautiful. The atmosphere is really inexpressibly enthralling. It's mind-boggling to me the difference that such a small absence like that of a computer can make. It truly is one of those things that we don't seem to mind in a place like a library because that's how it is at every library we go to. Those distractions and those noises are to be expected and therefore tolerated because it's just, quote, the way it is. We put up with it. We ignore it. Eventually, we don't even notice that it's there. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's just typically how it goes. Until that is, we enter a library like my beloved hometown library. It might even take us a few minutes of reading and studying there to realize the uniqueness of this place, but eventually the, the realization hits us. We're experiencing a completely new and foreign brand of placidity, and it makes it hard to go back to the whirring and buzzing that we had grown so accustomed to. Now, there are just a hair under a million observations and connections I could make with all this, but the one thing that seems to be burning itself into the forefront of my mind is the concept of distractions. This is fairly unlikely, but I immediately thought of a verse, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Distractions do very easily entangle me, for lack of a better word. And they do indeed hinder, to say the least. But the part that grabs me so hard is this idea of perseverance. I might even use the word determination because I feel like I can relate to that word even more. Distractions and hindrances don't just disappear among our heartfelt wishes. Sometimes we have to persevere with determination through them. The hard part is, like the computers and all that, sometimes we don't even realize that they're there. It's like, remember in junior high when you really liked that one special person you couple skated with at the roller rink that one glorious weekend and the ridiculous things you did for and around them to get them to notice you. When, when you were acting these things out, you probably didn't think that they were ridiculous, but the week or the month later when he or she is dating someone else or you just plain moved on, you realize how comical some of the stuff that you did really was. Yeah, that hindsight is a killer. I feel like that sometimes with distraction. There are so many things in my life that have just sort of always been there that it can become rather difficult 
to effectively prioritize or make decent choices. You almost get caught in the rut, the routine of being you, and it makes any sense at all. I, I read a note I wrote to myself years ago, and it floored me with some of the things that I decided to write myself. One thing it said was, don't you dare forget that life is about people. Don't ever let yourself become so consumed with stuff that you forget how to show love to people, how to take time out of your day just to be with people. Most importantly, be authentic, even if it kills you. Don't be willing to settle for mediocrity in anything. That was crazy to think that I had written that, but it made complete sense that I would because I know me. Well, sort of. Stepping out and observing is an odd experience. It's kind of like the bitter cold that we've been experiencing lately. Walking around then it yesterday was frustrating and downright displeasing. But today, when I walked out into it for the first time, after cleaning up inside for a little bit, it was refreshing and it didn't even feel cold for the first, well, like three seconds. The stuff that can become so mundane and grinding can be so revitalizing when we take the time to simply step back and reevaluate ourselves and our lives a bit. So thank you. Thank you to those that inspire me, often without even knowing it. Thank you to those that love me when I really don't even deserve cordiality. Thank you to those that push others and myself on towards something so so far beyond ourselves that it hurts to think about. Thank you for you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, normally joined by Brian Fromm. But because every once in a while our schedules just don't align, I'm taking the whole first hour. He's taking the second hour. Coming up in the second hour, by the way, we're going to talk about phase four here in Illinois. We're going to talk a little bit about Matt Chandler and social media. We're going to talk about Texas and Florida and some other kind of current events. So you're not going to want to miss that hour with Brian. But for this hour, I made the very risky decision late last night to just pick some blogs at random that I have written, some of them 15, 18, 19 years ago. I did not read them in advance, which is part of the foolishness. And I thought in the midst of all the noise of news and chaos and headlines and tweets and all that, I would just sort of read some some excerpts, some uh, kind of a dive into Ian's former digital diaries. So my apologies for anything I have said or I'm about to say, but this has been kind of fun to pick at random some things that I'd written in the past and to uh, to forget having ever said them. So this is our last one, and I wrote this in 2006, and it's called Plans. It says, so my initial contact and reason for going to India was to work with a man named Chavez and his church in New Delhi for the summer in accordance with my degree program requirements. When I first got there, however, I received an email from him explaining that he and his wife were going to be out of town for a few weeks and asked if I could push my trip back. Now, keep in mind that I'm already in India at this point. So that situation is what led me to be able to live and work at an orphan boys hostel home in the mountains for a couple of weeks, an experience that actually ended up being arguably the most profound of my entire trip. Anyway, while I was in the mountains in a city called Missouri, I was at an establishment called the Furs Estate, which is the name of the orphanage. And I met an Australian girl there named Isabel, who was volunteering in India for a few months as well, and happened to be working on the other side of this mountain. She was working with a girl's home that was loosely connected with the boy's home. And so through that, 
we kind of became friends. I found out that just a few days before I was to head to Delhi to finally meet with Chavez, she too was going to Delhi to begin work at that ministry site. And she was planning to stay there for the remaining and duration of the summer. We agreed that when we were both down there, we should catch up again. On a separate occasion, when I was going for a walk, I encountered a German man named Ray who had been in Missouri preaching and working for over 30 years at this point. He invited me into his home, and we had a delightful conversation that lasted for quite some time. While at his house, I briefly met a young man named Shyam, who was also heading into Delhi on the same day that I was, but on a completely different bus line. He warned me of how much hotter it would be there, and I thanked him for the tip. Fast forward a few days. I finally left my guys at Furs and arrived in Delhi by myself, attempting to communicate my way around town to make it to Chavez's house. He was supposed to pick me up, but bailed on that as well. It's a good start, right? When I made it to his apartment, however, I was feeling really sick and continued to feel sick for a couple of days, resting as much as I could. During that time, I observed a man who was both unreasonably disrespectful to his servant as well as his wife and his kid, and I knew that things were going to be difficult. When I finally was able to participate in the church that he pastored, I realized that this Well, this church of hundreds that he had talked about and had mentioned over email while I was in Elgin was really more like a church of 25 with one or two junior hires at the most. This was going to make it rather difficult to accommodate my youth ministry requirements at a church that didn't really have any youth, but I was still hopeful. During the week, however, Chavez kept me in his house, doing his dishes, washing his car and babysitting his son while he and his wife went out. I asked him numerous times every day if there was anything with the church or the youth in the community that I could be doing, but he never would allow me the opportunity. I would often go on long walks around the city and play soccer with the kids in the community or buy snacks and draw pictures with the street kids as a result. Eventually, I moved into a hostel home in the city since his apartment was 15 miles from the church or any real populace, and I began teaching some of the kids guitar and English and soccer. Now, of course... I was paying to stay at this hostel home where the previous arrangement was to live with Chavez. But frankly, I was thankful to be out of the house and, well, and it was nice just to be somewhere different. Maybe one day I'll actually elaborate on that situation a little bit more. Only now I was spending money that I didn't really have simply to live and was becoming a little worried. I then decided to call my friend Isabel and began volunteering with the ministry site that she was working with because... Although I had gotten out of Chavez's house, he still refused to give me any actual work, which was a problem since I had required hours that I needed to complete in order for this internship to be academically valid. So every day I would wake up, take a rickshaw across town and work with the street kids of a different community every day, still asking Chavez if I could be helping in any way. One day, however, I was walking through this giant bazaar in Delhi called Kanat Place, which is this kind of massive circular market with thousands of people from every walk of life running around and buying all sorts of items. This was a wonderfully strange place to people watch and simply take in a totally different and yet oddly similar culture from what I was accustomed to. Amidst the hustle and the bustle of literally thousands of people, I bumped into Sham. That's right. The same Sham that I met once hundreds of miles away for 45 seconds. He walked up to me and said, I remember you. Do you need a place to stay? I was a bit taken aback by the question, but then communicated to him all the things that had transpired over the last couple of weeks. 
He then casually told me that I could stay at his apartment rent-free for as long as I like, and that I just had to get my things together and we'd go from there. Crazy. So he tells me to meet him in this courtyard that is somewhat close to his house. There really aren't any addresses or street names in this neighborhood, so he, he couldn't really give me directions all the way to this place. And there was this one area called Socket. It had some little shops and restaurants and a movie theater, oddly enough. He, he told me to meet him there at 7 p.m. So I get there at 7, and he calls and tells me that he's going to be another hour and a half, and that I should just go to the walk-up window at the McDonald's and get something to eat. Now, I'll be honest. I'm a little frustrated at this point, but I take my guitar, my duffel bag, and I, I start walking to the Mickey D's. This goes against my better judgment, mind you. I do my best not to eat at corporate fast food restaurants while in other countries, but this was the only place that had a walk-up window that would accommodate me with a bag and a guitar. So as I'm walking toward the McDonald's, one of the homeless boys walks up to me and asks for some money. I told him that I'd get him some food if he was hungry. He nodded excitedly. Then a kid runs to the other side of me and asks for some food too. I agree. Two kids turns to four kids, then eight kids, and so on. So I get to the window, and I just order like 30 sandwiches. The guy kind of gave me this weird look and said that it's going to take a while to make that many sandwiches and instructs me to just sit outside the window and wait. So I put my bag down, and I turn around to see 25 little street kids sitting patiently in a semicircle facing me, awaiting their feast. I sat down, a little surprised, trying to think of a way I could entertain them while I waited. And then I realized that I had my guitar with me. At this point, I'd actually learned a couple of Hindi songs, so I started to play. The kids started singing joyfully with me, and soon a bunch of them were singing and dancing, and we were sort of just having this amazing time. By this point, a crowd of at least 100 onlookers had gathered to watch this sort of bizarre scene unfold. Some would walk by and yell at me saying, don't waste your time. Or they would curse the children in Hindi. We just ignored them and danced and played in the middle of this market. In fact, one of the security guards was hitting one of these kids. And with just a peculiar sense of courage, completely uncharacteristic to me, I walked up to this man and explained that they were with me. It was like out of a movie. It sounds even unbelievable as I'm explaining it now. So we finally got our food and we all sat down and we ate together until a woman approached me and introduced herself. And she said, why are you doing this? I simply responded that I, I believe that God calls all of us to love everyone, especially the poor and the marginalized homeless street kids. I was just merely trying to show them love as best I could. She asked if I would join her and her photographer for dinner and I agreed as long as I could finish eating with the kids first. During that dinner, we talked for over an hour about our different backgrounds and faiths. As they asked question after question regarding why I was in India in the first place and what possessed me to do something like that. They asked questions regarding Christianity and about American faith in general. And I asked the same questions in return. She then explained that she wanted to do an article on me for the Delhi Times and asked if a photographer could meet me there in a couple of days for some shots. I was reluctant to do any sort of interview or photo shoot, but I, I finally agreed. We talked a bit more. I thanked them for their conversation and we went our separate ways. But I went back to that same market every day just to play with these incredible kids that everyone around them seemed to hate. They never once asked me for money. 
but instead for piggyback rides and songs. As we sat there drawing pictures, they would feed me from the bag of chips that they were able to beg for a little while earlier. I was so humbled to be fed by these kids who truly have next to nothing, but for some reason were compelled to share their feast with me. Doritos never tasted so good. In that moment, that really set the tone for me in a number of ways that summer. My initial reaction to Sean being so careless and late was, was to be frustrated by my predicament of having to wait with nowhere to go, but clearly God had other things in mind. It's humbling to look in hindsight and to see how meticulously God had truly orchestrated that incredible experience in my life and a pointed reminder of how truly limited our perspectives can sometimes be. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the coronavirus and phase four here in Illinois, and then some news out of Liberty University. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, happy Friday and welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Brian Fromm. You might just be really confused right now because you may have listened to the first hour uh, and Ian was there, but not me. And now the second hour, I'm here, but no Ian. For the first time in the uh, 16 or 17 months that Ian and I have done the show together, uh, we've had to split the show and both fly solo for a little bit. Uh, this is what happens when you have uh, primary jobs. As you know, we're both pastors, Ian at Community Christian Church, the Yellow Box in Naperville, and I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. And uh, sometimes meetings and responsibilities get in the way. This one was on me today. And so uh, Ian was gracious enough to fly solo in the first hour, but then it flew into some commitment that he had. So I'm going to fly solo here in the second hour. So we do appreciate you uh, listening and being flexible with us. Uh, let me remind you where you can find us. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online at 1160hope.com, Twitter and Instagram at uh, Common Good Talk. And finally, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we really are grateful for those of you who listen to the podcast and uh, ask you to rate it, review it, share it with somebody. That really does help us. And we are uh, grateful. At the Facebook page, you can have conversations with other people. A uh, lot of dialogue going on there today and uh, over the past couple days. Well, uh, today here in Illinois, we moved to phase four here in the Restore Illinois plan. And you might remember uh, what those mean. Uh, ever since March, really, we've been in our homes, not doing much but now we're moving into phase four. And this feels like a big step, at least it does uh, in my home, but it probably does in yours as well. Uh, as a reminder, some of the things that we can do, and then we're going to listen to a clip here from a newscast, but some of the things we can do now, uh, you could be indoor dining uh, separated. Uh, you can be, uh, some theaters are opening up in limited forms. Uh, you can have groups of 50 uh, and uh, youth sports have started up again. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to listen to this clip, uh, clip from ABC7 Chicago uh, that talks a little bit the, about the coronavirus. Let's listen to this. 
As all four regions of the state cautiously turn this corner, officials are warning that weeks of hard work and sacrifice can easily be undone. The move to phase four is progress, but with pitfalls. As more aspects of the economy open and more person-to-person -person interactions take place, there are many more opportunities for the spread of COVID-19. The reopening of fitness centers, cinemas, and other businesses. The return of indoor dining and hundreds of thousands of office workers. Possible because of declining infections. Test positivity rate down nearly 90% from a high three months ago. Hospitalizations down 65% from a peak eight weeks ago. And COVID-related deaths down 65% in six weeks. This is not to suggest in any way that our battle is over. But so much progress has been made. In the last 24 hours, more than 31,000 tests, a new daily high. The state forming 12 mobile testing teams to travel to potential outbreaks. The virus has not been eradicated. The virus persists, and we don't yet have a vaccine or a highly effective treatment that's widely available. With roughly half the states in the U.S. seeing a rise in cases and hospitalizations, a warning that the same could happen here. That's why I'm not afraid to protect the people of Illinois by moving a region back to an earlier phase if we see a surge. The governor emphasizing the continued use of face coverings. In fact, he says all the critical metrics began to stabilize and then fall after the face covering rule was implemented in early May. Well, what we understand going on is so weird right now because in Illinois, it is so different than in the rest of the country, in many places, at least in the rest of the country. Uh, Illinois, if you saw a tweet by Governor Pritzker today, uh, Governor Pritzker uh, had some charts that showed just how well Illinois is doing. It doesn't mean at all that the coronavirus is gone by any means, uh, but you see the numbers climbing in places like Florida and Texas and California and Georgia, Arizona, some other places. Uh, to some scary levels in Texas, uh, some of the hospitals are starting to get full. Um, but here in Illinois, because of kind of the slower pace that we've taken it at, uh, things are looking really good. Uh, but Governor Pritzker's message to us uh, was uh, don't take the foot off the gas, right? Wear your masks, social distance, still take precautions. Don't throw caution to the wind. And uh, I'm interested, you can tell us at our Facebook page, I'm just interested what you out there are going to do in the coming days. Because like I said, my son is, uh, he plays travel baseball and they have started up and I'm just thinking about going to games and uh, how much I'm looking forward to that. But quite frankly, how weird it's going to feel to be around a lot of people. Uh, just today I was inside a restaurant and there wasn't any, it was completely safe, but it felt so strange. And I think that's what's going to happen to us. I don't know for how long. I don't know how long you wait until before going to movie theater. I know it'll be a while for me, but uh, kind of incremental steps. And here at phase four is kind of a really big incremental step for us here in Illinois. Uh, and so life will go back to feeling a little bit normal, but I did want to spend a little bit of time here with the time that we have still having a little conversation about. Um, do you remember back when we started uh, the uh, with COVID-19 and, and the lock, the quarantine and all of that? Ian and I talked a lot about how this was a way to love your neighbor, uh, even if you don't feel at risk. Right. Some of you, especially who are younger, while still at risk, and increasingly, it feels like some uh, 
they're seeing some risk in young people. It's still pretty minimal uh, compared to uh, those who are older. And, and I don't want us to lose sight of that. As Christ followers, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Like that is how we treat the world around us, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we talked three months ago that in the midst of the coronavirus, one way that we love our neighbor as ourselves is to not just care about my health, but their health and to, uh, to care about what they're comfortable with. And so, uh, you know, if you're out there and you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to throw a caution to the wind because I'm young or I'm healthy. Uh, I want you to go back three months when all of this first started and go, what were the precautions? What drove my precautions back then? Was it just fear uh, or was it a desire to love our neighbors as ourselves? Because uh, to get biblical about this, uh, when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments, right? Remember that Jesus is asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, right? Just love, love God with everything that you have. Make that your priority. Love him and follow him and live for him. And right. And then he said, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, to at least how you love yourself, if not more love your neighbor. And and we think about that um, in our day-to-day lives. We go, oh, you know, that means I'd be nice to my neighbor. That means I'll do nice things for my neighbor, whatever else it might be. And I don't just mean your physical neighbor, but the people in your life. But I think when something like a global pandemic hits, we are reminded that the best way in this situation to love our neighbor as ourselves is to uh, look out for their well-being as well as my own. Uh, and so... Uh, how does that practically play out? I think for the Christ follower to love our neighbors as ourself means to still uh, live with some caution. Uh, it doesn't mean stay quarantined in your house, but maybe a way to love your neighbor as yourself. I know this created a firestorm on our Facebook page yesterday, but maybe a way to love your neighbor as yourself is to wear a mask. Uh, it is to stay away from people. It is to uh, still check on people who may be more at risk. It might be look to others who are at risk more than your own desires. All of these come just because we go to phase four doesn't mean that the coronavirus is gone. It's not. Uh, we're going to have this in our midst at least until a vaccine. And, and then it doesn't just magically go away. Uh, and so I did want to start this second hour by just going, what's it still look like for you to love your neighbor? I feel like the church I got really focused back in March and April. We're going to love our neighbors. We're going to care for other people. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep doing that. By the way, we care for people, uh, the way we protect people, the way we help the most vulnerable. Let's still people still be people who love our neighbors as ourselves. So glad that you're joining us today. Welcome to phase four, Illinois. We're moving on and uh, hopefully life starts to feel a little more normal as we move through our summer. Well, coming up next. Uh, something is happening at, at uh, Liberty University that I'd like to talk about. Something uh, that's very interesting. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Along, usually alongside, I almost said it. I almost said alongside Ian Simpkins. Usually alongside Ian Simpkins. But Ian uh, is was gracious enough to run solo in the first hour today because I had something come up for uh, my church job. And then Ian has a meeting. So I'm running solo this second hour. First time we've ever done this in the 
uh, year and five months or so that we've been at this. And uh, so we are, uh, it's, it's a little trial run here today. It's glad to do it and uh, glad that you are joining us. Hope that you've got big plans for the weekend and uh, a little rainy out there today, but hopefully you have big plans. I get to go to a youth baseball tournament this weekend for the first time. Uh, now that we are in phase four, baseball pauses for nobody. So luckily it's outside and hopefully the rain holds off. But as we talked about last segment, go into phase four here in Illinois and uh, we are interested to know how that changes your life and how that changes your view of things. As we see things in other states not going well, but our state going well, now that uh, restrictions begin to be loosened here in Illinois, wondering how you're going to go about things. You can tell us that on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common uh, Good Radio Show. You can uh, talk to us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And then you can listen to our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, and also find old shows at 1160hope.com. Well, Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr. as their president is somebody we have talked about often on this show. And you might be like, well, why do we keep talking about him? Well, uh, he, it is no small institution that Jerry Falwell Jr. is the president of. In fact, the Liberty University, by some metrics, when you start adding in their online stuff, is the largest uh, Christian evangelical college in America. Uh, and Jerry Falwell Jr. is uh, their president. And he says and does a lot of things that do rile people up. He is very, not just supportive, but he is very close with the president. And for some, that's a very great thing. And others, that's a troublesome thing. Uh, but also, he tends to speak his mind a lot. You'll see him on Fox News. You'll see him on Twitter. He tends to speak his mind. And he's um, something's happening at Liberty University because of a tweet by Jerry Falwell Jr. So let me read this from The Hill. Uh, let me read this. It says a number of black staff members and student athletes are leaving Liberty University after the school's president, Jerry Falwell Jr., sought to mock Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat, on Twitter last month with a mask that depicted the racist imagery from Northam's medical school yearbook page. Four black staff members have left the school so far, and the same number of black athletes have announced their intentions to do the same after Falwell's tweet. The report comes several weeks after a group of black graduates signed a letter condemning Falwell for the tweet and demanding that he apologize. In the May 27th tweet, Falwell voiced his opposition to a mandate requiring Virginia residents wear face coverings in public, and in a swipe at Northam, said he would only wear a mask if it featured a photo from the governor's medical school yearbook that showed a man wearing a Ku Klux Klan robe and another man in blackface. I was adamantly opposed to the mandate from governor uh, of Virginia requiring citizens to wear face masks until I decided to design my own, said Falwell's tweet. It went on to say, if I'm ordered to wear a mask, I will reluctantly comply, but only if this picture of Governor Blackface himself is on it, Falwell said in the since-deleted tweet. The image drew a wave of criticism against the governor when it surfaced last year and fueled calls for Northam to resign. Falwell apologized for his tweet after drawing swift backlash from many online and from Black alumni for using the racist imagery. He uh, said he tweeted, After listening to African-American Liberty University leaders and alumni over the past week and hearing their concerns, I understand that by tweeting an image to remind all of the governor's racist past, I actually refreshed the trauma that image had caused and offended some by using the image to make a political point. 
based on our long relationships, they uniformly understood this was not my intent, but because it was the result. Uh, members of the University Board of Trustees also came to Falwell's defense shortly after his apologies. The chairman of the board said, uh, we know him and know him not to be a racist. However, Falwell's apology hasn't stopped several uh, black staff members and a number of athletes from leaving the school. Uh, two of the African-American football players announced their intentions to leave the university, citing issues like the school's, quote, racial insensitivity and cultural incompetent within multiple levels of leadership. A basketball player, Asia Todd, also announced earlier this month she'd be leaving in a video while wearing a Black Lives Matter uh, T-shirt. The exits also come as protests against racism and police treatment of people of color continue across the country. And so uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., he's very outspoken. And uh, I think this is one of those times where if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, right? If you uh, play with fire, sometimes you're going to get burned. Uh, And uh, to be honest with you, people, you want to know what I thought the first time I read this story? Uh, Good. I hope more people leave. Like, I hope this starts to hurt him because uh, my opinion is that Jerry Falwell Jr. is not only uh, way too flippant in the way he speaks as a president of the biggest Christian college in the country, uh, but he takes great pride in it. And uh, this was wholly inappropriate to uh, on a couple levels, right? First, the smaller level is to mock the governor's call for people to wear masks. What is the rest of the people in the school going to do when they see their president of the school going, nah, I'm not going to wear a mask. I disagree with this, right? We are called as believers, whether we agree or disagree with the government, uh, to show respect uh, and uh, Romans 13, right? To follow the, the laws of the government uh, when they don't go against our faith. Follow did not do that. But then two, uh, the insensitivity to put on your mask, a uh, even no matter what you thought you were doing with the picture, a Ku Klux Klan and somebody in blackface, just because you're trying to needle the governor, is so not just insensitive, but so tone deaf that I can't imagine he didn't know this would be the reaction. Like what worries me about this is, uh, is how did he not know this would be the reaction? And uh it has made me think, we talked about this yesterday, uh, it's easy sometimes to throw stones, but sometimes you got to look then and go, okay, uh, where's the plank in my own eye? Where do I speak or tweet or Facebook post or joke in insensitive manner uh, that that could hurt other people, that could uh, not just hurt other people, but could also hurt the cause of Christ. As people go, wait, aren't you a pastor or not even a pastor? Aren't you a Christ follower? You know, people look at Jerry Falwell's tweet and go, wait, aren't you the president of a Christian college? And if I weren't a believer, I'd go, okay, is that what this faith is all about? Like to, to flippantly do that, to score some, some sort of points or to take down a democratic governor is just, oh, it just bothers me so deeply. And some of you might be going, oh, you're overreacting. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I, I think the, the sign that I'm not overreacting is the number of people who have uh, not just called on him to apologize, but the number of people who are starting to leave. And I do think that the actions of Jerry Falwell Jr. in general are going to start to hurt uh, Liberty University more and more. And quite frankly, I would uh, I'm OK with that. I wouldn't send my kid there uh, because of the way he talks and the things he stands for. 
And, uh, you know, I do think, though, we need to take seriously the call of the Bible, uh, the book of James. Ian brought it up yesterday, that the tongue, uh, it, it is like a spark that sets off a fire, right? Or it is like a rudder driving a ship, that words are powerful. And that includes tweets and Facebook posts. Words are powerful. You can't just go, oh, they're just words. Words hurt. And words uh, inform. And words uh, create a narrative. And all of these different things. And and, and we can't just be flippant about them. Uh, As Christ followers, we must take seriously uh, not just the things we do, but also the things we say. Maybe you think I'm overreacting. Tell us at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. I don't think I'm overreacting. Uh, I think he deserves to get what's coming to him. Uh, and one of these days, his words are really going to get him in uh, in more hot water, is my opinion. Uh, but then we need to look in the mirror and go, how about myself? How about myself? Am I careful? Do I need to be more careful? Do I need to use my words more to build up rather than tear down, to encourage rather than mock? Uh, I think that's what the Bible calls us to. Uh, so again, go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, I want to play a couple minutes of a sermon that I was listening to from one of my favorite preachers, Matt Chandler, uh, and then just talk about it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside... I did it again. He is not here right now. My name is Brian Fromm, and I'm just so used to saying alongside Ian Simpkins. Uh, But if you want to hear Ian, Ian did the first hour of today's show solo. Uh, I had a work conflict, and now I'm uh, returning the favor as Ian has a work conflict here in the second hour. So for the first time ever in the history of our show, we're both uh, taking an hour and going solo. Uh, So hopefully it goes well. But uh, if you missed the, the first hour that Ian did, you can find it in a couple different places. On Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Find us online at 1160hope.com. There you can find our bios, also old old shows, and our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are grateful to those of you who do that. Uh, go ahead and share it. Share it with a friend. Uh, and uh, we are thankful for that. A little bit of a rainy Friday evening. Hopefully it clears up over the weekend and you've got great plans. But Again, as we've been saying each and every segment here, moving to phase four today of Restore Illinois. And so hopefully that returns a little bit of normalcy. But as we said earlier, uh, still be vigilant. Social distance, wear your mask, all these things. Enjoy some of the new freedoms that have come with phase four. But uh, it doesn't mean, as you see in many other states, that the coronavirus has at all gone away. We still got to keep winning this battle in Illinois uh, rather than letting things go like is happening in some other places. So uh, enjoy the new freedom, but uh, don't go crazy with it. How does that sound? One of my favorite preachers to listen to uh, is Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler uh, speaks uh, all conferences all over, but he is particularly the pastor of Village Church in outside of Dallas, Texas. And I'm a big fan of Matt Chandler. And recently I came across a clip from a year or two ago in which he was talking about the dangers of comparison and of Instagram and social media. Because this is a problem. Social media, uh, while having a lot of good aspects to it, it also is a struggle because you see the perfectness of other people, even though we know they're not perfect. But you're looking at what people are wanting you to see, and you begin falling into this trap of comparison. And so, Matt Chandler, I want you to listen to this clip 
that kind of deals with this and then goes a little bit deeper. Here's Matt Chandler. Um, a sociological study that rolled out this week. In fact, most of the major kind of secular media outlets picked it up. Uh, it was a pretty big study on Instagram and its effects on us. And, and here's the conclusion, not by Christians. The conclusion is Instagram leads to depression. All right? Instagram leads to depression. And, and here's why. Here's why. Because if we could just paint the picture like it actually happens. You just finished blowing through a whole season of something on Netflix. You have not got out of your pajama pants that day. You crawl into bed and you grab your phone and you start scrolling through your Instagram account. And here's what you find. Everybody's marriage is awesome. And their kids are incredible. And they're just counting money. And they don't struggle. And there's no pain. And there's no sorrow. And here you are in your trial. Ate a whole gallon of ice cream. Watching a series on Netflix. You already, And you start to resent them. And you start to grow in anger against them. Really? Me, Lord? I'm enduring this trial? What about them? And in your trial, your insidious, wicked heart will be exposed. And comparison is how it plays itself out. So just so you know, I'm not dogging you, I'm dogging us. Um, after my diagnosis with brain cancer, it happened around Christmas, and um, I, I was in a dark place. So no cape on me, I was in a dark place. Everything I saw was lost. I couldn't look at my daughters because I would think, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get to walk them down the aisle. I'm not going to get to na- help them navigate through the travails of being a teenage girl in this depraved day. I couldn't look at my son because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to encourage him to become the man. That he's-. And everywhere I looked, I just saw loss. And it was that time of year where everybody sends you a picture of their family and dog on a card. And so what Lauren does with those is she puts them all over our mantle and then she puts them on our Christmas trees. And um, I'm sitting on the couch, Lauren and the kids were gone and I'm um, sitting there just feeling sorry for myself and um, just really running through everything I was losing and the fact that really the next two years of my life they're gonna poison me and radiate me and then I was just gonna melt away and everything that was strong about me and fun about me is gone forever. That's where I was, that's where my heart was. Just don't wanna ever bull you. That's where my heart was, it was dark. And I look up and on my mantle is a picture of this family and the man in that family is a serial adulterer, a coward and a fool. And I thought, your pastor thought, really God? Me? This happening to me? I've done nothing but serve you. I've done nothing but have my life wrung out for your glory. I've done nothing but make much of your name and your renown. And this clown gets health? And I'll tell you what, man. The Holy Spirit did not wait long to punch me in the soul. And he very quickly stepped in. Luke 15 flooded my mind. And I realized I'm like the older brother complaining outside. And the Holy Spirit pressed upon my heart. So he can't be a victorious story of my salvation and reconciliation. Only you can. Plus, brother, I think you might be elevating your own worth here. You really think that, um, that, that my plan is contingent upon you being here? Brother, you're going to go on the ground, come on home to me, and I'm just going to keep moving. I, I've hinged nothing on you, sweet friend. <laughs> and it was a really beautiful, awful moment. And I'm grateful to God for it. 
When we're enduring trials, we become hyper aware of the prettiness of other people's lives and we begin to resent them. And, and James here, via the power of the Holy Spirit, is going, no, 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 no. It's all level in the end. Don't, don't believe the Instagram hype. Everyone endures trials. Everyone struggles. We'll have seasons in which the sky is clear and we'll have seasons in which uh, they're cloudy. Uh, I am leading you into maturity. I am showing you, you need me. So, man, I, I really appreciate uh, Matt Chandler in general, but, but this clip uh, I think is so powerful because it starts somewhat in a comical way about Instagram, right? Like that we all look at comparisons and we all look to other people's lives and we go, God, why can't I have that life? Why can't I be that? And, and we start to uh, envy people around us. But man, then when he tells that story of when he had brain cancer, and if you know anything of Matt Chandler's story, he was he was given like a very small amount of time to live. It is pretty miraculous that he is still alive and healthy. And uh, and to this point, uh, his brain cancer is in remission and gone away. But there was a time when he first was sick that people were going, man, Matt Chandler is going to be dead within six months. And that story he told sitting on his couch by himself, looking at Christmas cards going, God, what are you doing? Because there are many times as a pastor that I think that if I'm going to be honest with you, laying my cards on the table, I go, God, you know, I was uh, a good kid. I went to Wheaton College and I've always been a pastor. I've always been on your team here. God, why, why can't X happen? Why does the person over there who is definitely not on your team, why does he seem to prosper or she seem to prosper while I struggle with this or that? And, and I, I appreciate Matt Chandler sharing this because I have felt that. And, and what he said about what, what he heard God say to him was not only drove him to his knees, but man, it shook me. It, it stopped me. This concept of God saying, hey, you're not special. Like the, this, the older son of the prodigal son story that Chandler talks about there. Think about the older son. We always talk about the younger son in the prodigal son story runs away. I wish my dad was dead. I'm going. And then he, he's, he's, he's in the middle of starvation and he finally goes back and his dad welcomes him back. And the older son is going, this isn't fair. Instead of the older son saying, I'm so glad my, my, my younger brother's back. And he said, no, dad, this isn't fair. I haven't left your side. And I feel that at times. God, I've always been here for you. You should be blessing me and not others. And that's why I found this so powerful. If you've been a Christian for a long time, I wonder if you ever fall into those same uh, temptations where you look at other people and not only do you have envy, but you say, God, that's not fair. And if that's you and that's me, I'd remind you uh, the grace we've been shown in the gospel is not fair. It is. That's what makes it grace. And we can celebrate that and then celebrate others as God shows them grace as well. I think this is such an important message, and that's why I wanted you to hear it today. If you want to hear it again, you can find it on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show we uh, the same way we end every show, with interweb insanity. That's next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. 
here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Friday again, Ian. Uh, went solo in hour one. I'm taking hour two solo here as we close out the week. And we close out every show and the week the same way each and every day. That's with Interweb Insanity where our executive producer, Keith Conrad, finds crazy stories from the internet. We read them sight unseen, and uh, we get to react to them. So right alongside with you. So I'm going to read them all today. Uh, The first one is out of England. Letter from Winnie the Pooh to young fan fetches more than $15,000. A 1935 letter signed by Winnie the Pooh, actually written by illustrator Ernest Howard Shepard, that's triple its expected amount when it sold for more than $15,000. The note, which included a drawing of the bear from A.A. Milne's book series, as well as best friend Piglet, apologizes to a young fan named Buffkins for missing his birthday party. Dominic Winter's auctioneer said Buffkins was a childhood nickname for Harry Stopes Rowe, whose mother, Mary, uh, Marie Stopes, was a close friend of Shepard. The Stopes Rowe family said Harry would often invite Winnie the Pooh to his birthday parties. And the illustrator would respond with a letter apologizing for the bear's absence. Uh, The letter had been expected to fetch a top bid of $5,000 when it went under the hammer Thursday, but it ended up selling for a total of $15,521. Girlfriend's gonna get paid. Some people just have too much money to spend. The next one's out of Texas. Endangered monkey found in center console of truck entering the U.S. Customs officers in Texas made an unusual discovery in a pickup truck attempting to cross the border uh, from Mexico. An endangered spider monkey. U.S. Customs and Border Protection Office of Field Operations said officers at the Hidalgo International Bridge referred a Ford F-150 pickup truck attempting to enter the country from Mexico for further inspection. The officer searched the truck, which was being driven by a 23-year-old U.S. citizen, and discovered the young monkey concealed inside the vehicle's center console. It turned out to be uh, an endangered spider monkey, a species native to the tropical forest of Central and South America, including southern Mexico. The agent took custody of the monkey, which will be quarantined and examined by a veterinarian before being transferred to a new home. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you a monkey Haven't you always wanted a monkey? We're going to stay down in the Texas area. Judge says Lowe's customer smacked him over mask rule. A San Antonio man who berated a Lowe's worker after being told he was supposed to wear masks was spoken to by another customer, the judge who issued the order requiring masks. But after Bexar County Judge Nelson Wolf tried to give the man his business card so they could discuss the policy, the customer smacked it out of the 79-year-old judge's hand. Uh, the spokesperson says that Wolf decided to step in after hearing the man talk to the worker. The man became belligerent and eventually abusive to this poor lady, and the judge tried to intervene and defuse the situation. Uh, Wolf issued an executive order last week requiring workers and customers inside businesses to wear masks. The customer, Terry Toller, age 47, turned himself in and received a citation. The charge against him was reduced from assault on a public servant, which is a felony, to disorderly conduct, a misdemeanor, punishable by up to $500. Hey, you, let's fight. Them's fighting words. (laughs) 
you want to be careful about who uh, you assault, I suppose. Uh, Next one, again out of Texas. Texas is coming in strong today. Very expensive balloon ride promises quite a view. Uh, Still pricey, but this might be the cheapest option for space tourists yet. The company Space Perspective plans to fly people up to Earth's stratosphere in a giant balloon with a pressurized cabin. The cost? $125,000 a seat. The trip would take about six hours, a leisurely ascent up at about 12 miles an hour, followed by two hours spent in the stratosphere and then the trip home. The balloon would end up about 19 miles above the surface of the Earth, which Smithsonian points out is not technically outer space, but high enough to see the curvature of the Earth and the darkness of space space stretching out beyond. The cosmic ballet goes on. All right, the last one out of Michigan. Candidate's daughter urges people not to vote for him. I saw this in a viral tweet. Robert Regan is being campaigned against by his own daughter. Uh, Reagan, Reagan, a Republican candidate for Michigan State Representative, has described himself as, quote, so conservative that he makes Rush Limbaugh look like a liberal. And the Daily Dot reports that his stances include calling for English to be Michigan's official language, uh, opposing abortion as well as any type of immigration reform, and restoring a constitutional militia in his state. Apparently, his daughter is not on board. Stephanie Reagan uh, uh, said on Twitter, tweeted on Tuesday, If you're in Michigan and over the age of 18, please, for the love of God, do not vote for my dad for state rep. Tell everyone. The state's uh, primary is August the 4th. The tweet went viral and quickly. As of this posting, it has more than 177,000 likes and 36,000 retweets. The WOOD TV reports Stephanie's sister, Natalie, also posted a similar tweet. I am your father. That is crazy. That is a crazy story. Go ahead and Google it because his daughters came out strong against him and he's had to have that conversation. That's an awkward time around the dinner table. Well, we're glad you joined us today. I know it was a weird show with Ian in it alone in the first hour, me alone in the second hour, but we're going to be back together again on Monday. Uh, again, if you missed any of our shows this week, you can find them on our podcast. But again, join us on Monday from 4 until 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.